Hello and welcome to the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts on issues of interest to commercial lawyers and to law students and others. It's produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia to honour the memory of our friend and mentor, the late Professor Bob Baxt. I'm Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School, recording here today on Gadigal Country in Sydney. I'm joined today by my co-host and fellow member of the BLS Executive, Mr John Keebs from Johnson Winter Slattery in Adelaide. Welcome, John. Hi, Pamela. Great to be here. The topic for today's discussion is the recent and very significant reforms to Australia's Foreign Investment Review Framework. They came into effect on the 1st of January this year. To discuss those reforms, we're delighted to introduce two of Australia's preeminent FERB lawyers. First, my friend and colleague, Wendy Ray. Wendy is a partner at Allen in Melbourne and our mergers and acquisitions specialist who focuses on energy and infrastructure transactions. She has very extensive FERB experience and has been the deputy chair of the BLS Foreign Investment Committee for six years. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Pam. Pleased to be here. We also have with us today um, Mr Malcolm Brennan, who's a partner at King & Wood Mallisons in Canberra. Uh, like Wendy, Malcolm's an expert in the application of the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act and of Australia's foreign investment policy and the impact that these uh, pieces of legislation have on proposed investments into Australia. Malcolm is chair of the BLS Foreign Investment Committee. Welcome, Malcolm. Thanks, Pamela, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm going to hand over now to John Keyes, who is himself an experienced practitioner in the area, to lead the discussion. Thanks, John. Thank you, Pamela. And with the, the changes to the FERB regime in the middle of COVID last year and the, the recent changes coming into effect on the 1st of January, this is a very, very uh, topical area. Uh, first question uh, to, uh, to Wendy. Um, what is Australia's foreign investment review framework and why should we care about it? So, John, the, the framework is comprised of an act and regulations and there's a policy that sits alongside the The policy enables uh, things to be updated as, uh, as things change in the world around us. The policy basically sits with the Act and the Act requires the decision maker, who is the Treasurer in this case, to determine whether an investment is contrary to the national interest. The policy document sets out some of the things that are relevant to that national interest consideration, but it is a concept that evolves over time. National security, of course, is important and that's been the highlight of the, the new um, reforms that started on 1 January. Um, the benefits, impacts to the community, employment and other factors that the decision maker considers relevant. And sitting alongside that, there's also a series of guidance notes. So what happens in practice is that an application is lodged, it's assigned to a case officer, and then the case officer sends it out to the relevant government agencies to consult and ask questions and then a recommendation goes up to the decision maker where the decision maker determines whether or not the proposed 
is contrary to the national interest. Um, the reason we care about all this is that we've relied on foreign investment for many years. We need foreign investment for growth and the continued prosperity of Australia, but that also needs to be balanced against Australia's national interests and um, national security is one of the things that's highlighted in that area. Uh, and the government has been clear that they want to continue to encourage foreign investment, but it also has to be investment that is acceptable to the electorate at large. Thanks, uh, Wendy. Now, uh, turning to Malcolm. Malcolm, at a high level, uh, there have been some recent changes to the foreign investment uh, review framework. What, what are they and why are they significant? Yes, John, uh, I think uh, uh, sort of calling them recent changes is a, uh, is a bit of a challenge for that. They, they are quite significant. Right at the height of the COVID crisis and when we'd reduced our thresholds to zero and we're in the middle of a uh, challenging and fractured relationship with the Chinese, the Treasurer announced uh, what he described as the most significant reforms uh, to the regime since 1975, uh, which is probably about right. And there's been a few other uh, landmark shifts over the time. But what has been introduced, as Wendy has already referred to, uh, is uh, an attempt to pick up transactions and acquisitions and, and new business stuff that are not otherwise caught by the uh, thresholds that, that previously applied. So the national security regime is implemented to pick up those things. It's not something that uh, perhaps the media might have led everyone to believe that was aimed squarely at the Chinese. The Chinese government entities were already subject to $0 thresholds. So what it was picking up is those that were getting the benefit of thresholds. So a national security regime where certain activities are mandatorily notifiable now, again, we go back to a $0 threshold in the national security space, also national security land. A lot to do with uh, critical infrastructure, the Defence Department and dealing with defence, as well as the national intelligence community, uh, which is a bit of a broad beast that covers things like uh, ASIO and ACES, Home Affairs Department, and even here in Canberra, the, the Australian Federal Police. So the changes brought in that, and national security has always been a component of the national interest test, uh, but there's a focus on national security uh, in, these, in this new national security regime. Also not highlighted uh, broadly in, the, in, the recent, in those significant changes was the introduction of far greater uh, scrutiny and reporting requirements and treasurer powers around uh, some of this national security element, but also to ensure that uh, conditions are being complied with. There had been uh, recent outcry uh, and uh, even Senate inquiry into certain foreign investors who hadn't complied with their conditions, and there's a fair bit of a reaction to, to that in, uh, in these changes. Um, and not all is bad. Um, there's perhaps good, bad and ugly. Not all is bad in, the, uh, uh, in, in this new process. There have been some relaxations. So where there are, for example, in foreign government investors, uh, the definition of foreign government investor has been relaxed a bit to allow certain foreign government investor uh, proposals to get the benefit of thresholds, uh, but of course not in the national security area. Uh, the final uh, aspect of the recent changes at a high level, uh, and, and I did refer to ugly, uh, the ugly is the increase in fees. Um, 
At the lower end, you can find some brackets where there actually has been a reduction. But for the most part, uh, we've seen a, a massive increase in, fi- in FERB filing fees. Uh, the, top, the top fee now kicks in at $500,000 for a $2 billion commercial transaction. Uh, if you happen to be looking at agricultural land, that top fee is for an $80 million farm. Uh, it's still uh, beggars belief that uh, uh, we're trying to get investment in. As Wendy said, Australia needs foreign investment uh, in the agricultural space uh, and yet we've got such a large filing fee uh, in that space. Uh, that fee also applies in the residential space uh, uh, at a $40 million property, although uh, you would think someone buying a $40 million house uh, probably could cope with a uh, $500,000 filing fee. So that's a quick summary of the, uh, the recent changes, John. Uh, Wendy, did you want to make a comment as well? Yes, just wanted to chime in on those fees. Uh Look, I think that they are excessive. They're supposed to be benchmarked against other countries. But the issue that we have is that our foreign investment net captures many more transactions than those of other countries. So an investor is frequently filing is going to have a much larger fee burden um, than they do in other countries. That is a significant concern. And we're already seeing impacts on transactions from that because you know, $500,000 at the top end, it's it's a big amount of money. And so some people are saying, well, I won't file. It's going to be very interesting to see how these fees play out and some of these other changes because they are significant disincentives for investors. Um, remembering that we need to continue to encourage foreign investment here and that um, funds have many sources of capital and they can invest in many other we have a regime that works for everyone and that we can still attract investors here. Indeed. Uh, now, there's been a couple of mentions of uh, the thresholds. Um, Malcolm or Wendy, could you just take us through the what, what you mean by the thresholds and how they've changed over the past 12 months through this uh, COVID and reform process? Sure. The um, Every year, uh, FERB thresholds for the operation of the Act are indexed, um, and so we end up with some quite weird numbers as a result. And we started with a base, I think, back when Treasurer Wayne Swan took the, the base level to $200 million. So it's quite a large number. That's the general asset threshold for the operation of the legislation. Uh, there are also thresholds for acquisitions of interests uh, in land uh, and in both sensitive land uh, and non-sensitive land. The non-sensitive land lines up with the general threshold. What happened on March the 29th last year as a um, response to the COVID crisis, the Treasurer announced that all, all of the value thresholds in the FERB regime were all set to zero. Um, now, I don't want to bore the listeners with uh, all of them, but someone's worked out that there are actually something like 64 different thresholds that apply through the FERB process, both in terms of value as well as proportionate thresholds, so proportionate interests. Um, the bright line normally is 20% interest. So when it was all set to zero, we saw a, a, an incredible amount of uh, extra work going over to Treasury and applicants who'd never been there before over the past 12 months. Uh, we're, we're caught up within the FERB web. Um, we can discuss what uh, impact that had later. The th- 
thresholds return to normal on 1 January, and by normal, it means we've gone back to that indexed amount. So this year, it's the general asset threshold is $281 million. Uh, the sensitive land threshold is set at $61 million. Now, interestingly, having experienced that COVID crisis $0 threshold, uh, it gave us a, a taste of what we're now faced with with the national security regime, which has a $0 threshold. We saw a change many years ago. We used to have 15% as the threshold. It was always a bit awkward uh, in terms of proportionate ownership that we had a 15% threshold but a 20% takeover threshold. Um, So when the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act was rewritten in 2015, uh, we introduced a 20% threshold and that was seen as sensible. It lined up with the, the corporate takeover threshold. With this new national security regime, the value threshold is set to zero, but the proportionate threshold is set at 10%. So in a sense, we're actually going backwards from what we'd achieved with the lining up with the corporate uh, uh, takeover threshold for these national security elements. And it does show the government's sensitivity in the space where 10% is seen as a, a line in the sand over which they are interested in understanding where there is any national security issue. Yeah, I think that that's right. And the issue will be whether they've cast that net too wide. Uh, with, with the changes that have come through at the moment, we've got a definition of what falls within um, national security businesses. And at the moment, it's focused on critical infrastructure such as water, ports, electricity, gas, and uh, telecommunications assets, and it also extends to things that have a connection with defence and intelligence agencies, as you mentioned. But um, one of the biggest concerns that we have is that the Critical Infrastructure Act is changing at the same time. It's currently the subject of a parliamentary inquiry, but it is proposed to bring another 11 sectors into that loop and we'll find that that national security business and that $0 threshold um, returns to what we were experiencing during the COVID period because it's putting back in financial services, uh, anything to do with data, um, food, groceries, uh, health and a number of other sectors. So, you know, Mel, you and I have spoken from time to time about what it will mean if and when those changes come in and we think we're going to be asking what is it national security uh, because it's such a wide wide net. So we, we are concerned about that extension um, and, and the consequences of that being, you know, back to uh, 9 March and the $0 threshold that created mayhem. You're listening to the BLS Report. We're talking today with Wendy Ray and Malcolm Brennan about recent changes to Australian foreign investment review framework. Um, Some further questions. Uh, China has raised FERB as one of the grievances with Australia, one of 14. What are the significant concerns uh, with Chinese investment in Australia that you run into? I think what we we see, John, is the uh, um, sort of the peak of this national security concern. there's, there's clearly been some issues. Now, obviously, uh, being national security, we're not privy to that. Um, but, you know, the government's reaction in certain spaces uh, has, has really indicated a concern with uh, 
with with some Chinese activity. Now, the thing we've got to be really careful of here, and also with um, even with China's reaction, is that we tend to trumpet the negative outcomes. Um, so where there's been a no, or uh, in, in, uh, in the FERB space, uh, something was invented by Treasurer Morrison, as he then was, was something called a preliminary decision, uh, which is an indication from the decision maker or the treasurer that uh, you know, he's minded not to approve. Uh, and if you get one of those, uh, you, you might have a go at uh, um, putting some mitigations in place to see if that would uh, convince the treasurer otherwise. But generally, uh, you know, the wiser course of action is to withdraw and uh, rethink the process. So uh, when the Chinese refer to a number of rejections, most of those are not formal rejections. A lot fall into that preliminary decision bucket. But unfortunately, we tend to focus on the negatives uh, and don't talk about the positives. So there have been a a few Chinese approvals. I wouldn't say a lot, but a few Chinese approvals have still managed to get through. Um, There certainly has been some concerns around national security. The Treasurer is uh, very focused on the energy sector. So we've seen some concerns particularly in the renewable energy space. Um, We also saw a very public and quite surprising uh, rejection by the Treasurer of um, a proposal by a Chinese investor into an Australian listed stock whose only assets were in Africa, Um, but those assets were in uh, what what we now term critical minerals, Uh, and there were some issues that were seen by the Treasurer there. Look, the Australian policy that uh, Wendy mentioned before, we've got a policy that sits behind the Act, uh, does not single out any single country. So it's non-discriminatory in that sense. Um, So they'll they'll review and and look at all applications coming through. There's nothing that says you cannot invest from China. Um, But unfortunately, the Chinese have perceived with some of those uh, uh, negative outcomes uh, that that is the case. But as I say, there, there are positives uh, with approvals still being able to issue. It was helpful that the Treasurer, I think there was a lot of unfortunate publicity around that pro-bill decision at the start of the year. And, you know, there was a lot of um, media around it. You know, we were talking about um, a relatively small number of proposals that had raised issues. I think one of the hardest things for everyone to navigate in all of this is that where there's no um, formal rejection or uh, um, publication around a preliminary decision, but things that were sort of withdrawn behind the scenes, uh, there's a bit of a lack of transparency in terms of what the approach is. And um, here I say it, Chinese whispers result, and all of a sudden you have people talking about, you know, a ban on Chinese investment um, altogether, and that's, that's not the case. But part of the issue is, you know, not all of the decisions are published and there used to be a time when decisions and conditions were published by way of announcement. But at the moment, and because of the increased focus on national security, uh, there's been a change in approach and those decisions aren't published. I think also, Wendy, there's uh, because of that sort of uh, you know, focus on the negatives and so on, there, there tends to be, uh, particularly from the media and, and to some extent also, um, some politicians, a conflation of the terms Chinese investment and foreign investment, uh, and they, they, they tend to mean the same, um, which, which makes, makes it difficult for foreign investment generally um, when there are challenges in the space. You know, for example, we might talk about massive increases in fees, uh, but in a 
terms of a popular context, um, no one's going to shed a tear about that. And, and certainly um, the statistics would show that there's a great deal of um, investment from uh, the US, Europe and Canada, as well as uh, uh, from uh, from China. Um, we t- we've talked <clears throat> about the national security regime a couple of times, and I note Wendy's comment that uh, uh, maybe a question of uh, what isn't national security rather than what is. But um, the, uh, the new national security regime has now commenced. Um, how are you finding uh, the applications over the last couple of months that uh, may have uh, national security implications? Is, is, there, is there grave uncertainty about what national security means? In practice, a lot of these sectors were already regarded as sensitive anyway. And so in practice, the same sort of assessment is being made. I think where the uncertainty lies is um, because of the breadth of some of the definitions, people um, are not sure where, you know, where those boundaries are and if they're operating in a particular sector and then they have a change of direction or, or start doing something else, you know, how significant does the change need to be to be something that's notified? Um, a lot of people are putting in voluntary filings as well to stop the operation of that call-in power. So it's early days, John. Um, you know, we're not very far into the, the new year and the new regime and things are a little bit quiet in the first half of January because um, it was shut for a while and uh, decision makers weren't available and people were on holidays recovering from the, the COVID period. But it, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, um, certainly speaking to clients. Um, at the moment, they tend to be thinking that if they are in one of those um, potentially sensitive areas that they will put in a voluntary filing and that's what we're recommending that they do. I think there is a real concern, um, you know, if you're looking to advise clients that uh, where there is this voluntary process, uh, that if you didn't avail yourself of that voluntary process uh, and and took the brave call, uh, particularly in an area that's actually listed in FERB's guidance notes, I think there'd be... Uh, real risk of criticism, um, as well as you know, if the treasurer reads it in the Fin Review that a certain transaction had occurred and it uh, had uh, a national security concern of the day, uh, and he called it in, uh, it could be a bit challenging for you know, not only the applicant but also the advisors. And uh, I believe it's the case that uh, review of decisions in this this area is a, is is quite a challenging thing. And that, and that means that uh, you know national security probably means what the treasurer uh, believes it to be at any given point in time. So d- does that does that give a fairly broad discretion on the part of the treasurer uh, to call things in which could potentially surprise people? Oh, I've got no doubt about that. Um, you know, it, it, it really there's no definition of uh, of national security. Um, it really comes from. You know, the sectors, we get some indication there. The guidance note that FERB has issued sets out a, a range of sectors where um, there is concern, and, and that's broad. You know, it's almost going, it almost matches what Wendy was saying before about the security of critical infrastructure legislation amendments that are coming through. Um, but it doesn't stop the Treasurer having concern in some other, some other space. So where... You know, for example, um, you know, someone buys a building, a CBD building, and there's a, a government or no government tenant in there, but they install a government tenant. 
could that be a national security concern where you know the building is owned by a foreign government investor or someone where Australia is having an issue with it on on the day? Um, it's it's quite broad and does give the treasurer power. I mean, look at the end of the day for the past um, five or six years, actually since the uh, the change to the Liberal government. Um, you know, they went to, or Tony Abbott did go to the election saying that you know, FERB had been asleep at the wheel. There had been very little compliance and follow-up activity. So this has been coming for quite some time. It's not really uh, a knee-jerk reaction to any uh, fracturing in the Australia-China relationship last year. <laughs> Terribly unfortunate that it was the, the, the uh, announcements were made right in the middle of all of that. Um, but it's been coming for some some time that the coalition government has been wanting to uh, beef up FERB and, and uh, the way in which review can be undertaken of activities by foreign parties. That's right, Mel. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty clear that um, there's big conversations that have been held between FERB and other regulators in you know, the UK, the US, etc. And there's, there is a worldwide trend to having a closer look at transactions that impact on national security. You know, that's difficult. A lot can change in 10 years. And over the course of the last few years, we've seen um, changes in transactions. So, you know, going back five years ago, um, a renewables transaction or being involved in renewables wouldn't have been a big deal or a big issue and we wouldn't have expected any concerns given the size of the asset involved as opposed to, you know, major power stations and the like. But as you mentioned before, that's now become very sensitive and we've seen decisions in the in the food industry and other things that perhaps weren't expected. So it, it is a bit of a concern having that 10-year period because a lot can change um, and that's also a concern with the new last resort power where um, people are concerned that even after a decision has been made by the Treasurer and there's been an extensive review process, we've now got a last resort power where in certain circumstances um, they can have another look at the transaction and in an extreme case could actually order divestment. Um, these are pretty extensive powers and there are concerns about how it will be exercised, um, particularly around the call-in power. So I'm aware certainly advising clients to lodge and, and firms try to be helpful in that regard because they recognise um, that they need to strike a balance as well in terms of the guidance they're giving. So they have published a guidance note on national security and they have set out a range of sectors tying in with the critical infrastructure reforms where they're suggesting that people um, do put an application in. So I think SERP's trying to be helpful but we can't fully anticipate what concerns you know might happen over over time and what issues will be of concern for the Treasurer of the day. Uh, one, one final question uh, to each of you. Uh, if there was one thing that you, sh you could change about the, the FERB regime, what would it be? I think it would be to bring back a balance of common sense in an economic sense, bearing in mind, uh, as Wendy said right at the outset, Australia does need foreign investment and that having foreign investment itself is consistent with the national interest, uh, but balance that with a monitoring process that ensures that the investment that does come in is consistent with Australia's national interest. Uh, that does include the national security test, uh, but have it balanced in a way 
that we that FERB is not necessarily having to be seen as a security regulator. Uh, leave that to Defence and ASIO, etc. Um, but be the moderator. And as as the chairman David Irvin has has, has said previously, but I, I I think it may not follow any any more. Is that FERB should be a facilitator of investment uh, and. Other jurisdictions, be it tax, competition, security agencies, etc., they have their own jurisdictions and their own powers. So I think we need to ensure that FERB does not become a, uh, a roadblock to investment, but, as, but that word facilitate investment I think is very important. Look, I think I've got um, a similar similar approach there, Mal. I think, you know, that element of common sense uh, you, you see very simple um, applications sometimes getting caught up in consultation and, and agencies not reverting with, with their comments. Things that are relatively straightforward should be treated as such and they should go through. And, you know, it's not one size fits all and some of those things should not be taking the time that they take and they shouldn't need to go, you know, out to consultation agencies where it's a pretty straightforward transaction. So if we do need to get that balance right, it, it, it's a hard one, but I agree with that. And I guess our other pet grievance is the, is the fees and we'd like to get rid of those or have them brought in line to be more reasonable because I think the level of the fees at the moment is causing um, decisions to be made that aren't logical decisions and you know, the, it, it's crazy to be having um, arguments with case officers around, you know, the complexity of the fees is amazing and having arguments around, you know, how the various things, how you add it all up and what, what the cost should be. Um, it's just an unnecessary um, administrative um, burden. And I think too, it's, you know, I can see why they've got new compliance powers and it's important to to have the rules and show we're enforcing the rules. But we also need to show some common sense there as well. And when people realise they've made a small mistake, they've reported a couple of days late, we shouldn't be throwing the book at them. We should, um, you know, we should be welcoming that and working with investors in a positive sense so that we're encouraging people to come forward and work in a constructive manner, um, you know, with the regulator rather than um, having people afraid and, uh, you know, unreasonable penalties because, the penalties under the new regime are just enormous and I really hope they're going to exercise some discretion as to how they're administered. Okay, thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks very much, John, for leading that really stimulating discussion. Um, I'd like to, on behalf of your fellow members of the BLS and also the rest of our audience, um, thank especially our two expert colleagues and generous guests Malcolm Brennan from KWM in Canberra and Wendy Ray from Allens in Melbourne in lockdown while we're recording this. So thank you both very much for being so generous uh, with your expertise for your colleagues and uh, other listeners. No, th thank you for having us. Yes, thanks.